Hello and welcome to episode 12. In this episode, we will be discussing diabetic retinopathy. In today's scenario, we have a 50-year-old male with type 2 diabetes for the last 15 years. His A1C is currently 6% on glipizide 10 mg twice daily. He has distal sensory neuropathy. He also has moderately increased albuminuria. He was recently found to have non-proliferative retinopathy detected by his ophthalmologist. Which one of the following medications have been shown to reduce the chance of progression of his diabetic retinopathy? Is it phenofibrate, metformin, dilaglutide or trulicity, or aspirin? And the correct answer is phenofibrate. Although not FDA approved for this purpose, patients in the ACCORD study who took phenofibrate with simvastatin experienced reduction in the incidence and progression of their retinopathy independent of their glycemic control compared to those who took simvastatin alone. Aspirin has no effect on retinopathy and can be used in patients for the purpose of cardiovascular risk reduction. Metformin has not been shown to directly improve retinopathy, however may improve retinopathy indirectly by improving A1C control. Dilaglutide, like many GLP-1s, can indirectly affect retinopathy because of the quick reduction of A1C, which can temporarily cause worsening of retinopathy due to osmotic shifts. However, GLP-1s themselves do not directly affect retinopathy. So, diabetic retinopathy is the number one cause of blindness among middle-aged adults in developed countries. Other eye disorders like glaucoma and cataracts also occur earlier and more frequently in patients with diabetes. In terms of pathophysiology, the chronic hyperglycemia that occurs in patients with diabetes especially in genetically susceptible individuals, results in changes in the capillaries that feed the retina. Glycation end products react with collagen in the capillary walls, resulting in damage, and also result in the release of reactive oxygen particles that cause inflammatory changes in the vessel walls. As a result of all of this, the pericytes, which are the cells that line the capillaries, are lost. The basement membrane is thickened. The intravascular pressure-regulating mechanisms in the capillaries are disrupted, which leads to intracapillary hypertension, causing outpouching of the capillary walls and aneurysms. All of these mechanisms contribute to disrupted blood flow to the retina, and that's how non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy happens. This ultimately results in chronic ischemia to the retina as well as edema from the inflammatory changes and adaptive mechanisms aimed at replenishing the retinal cells with more blood flow, such as the release of insulin-like growth factor 1 and vascular endothelial growth factor, are both produced from the cells, and they aim to recruit new blood vessels to the retina. This is how proliferative retinopathy begins. The blood vessels themselves then obscure the retina and affect vision. Additionally, you know, there is an increased in fibroblast proliferation from the inflammation that can contribute to retinal traction and detachment. 
Additionally, the glucose levels in the eye are elevated compared to normal physiologic conditions, and that results in overloading the normal glucose metabolism pathway into sorbitol and other products. This is a very slow metabolism pathway, so hyperglycemia results in elevation of sorbitol levels within the lens, which can then pull fluid into the lens, contributing to cataract formation. Screening for diabetic retinopathy using a comprehensive dilated eye exam should be initiated in patients with type 2 diabetes as soon as they're diagnosed, while for patients with type 1 diabetes can be started after 5 years of the diagnosis. For patients with new-onset gestational diabetes, they do not require referral to an ophthalmologist. While patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes who are contemplating pregnancy, they should be screened for retinopathy before pregnancy in each trimester and then one year postpartum. And that's because the risk of progression of pre-existing retinopathy is extremely high in pregnancy. In patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, the eye exams can be completed on an annual basis initially. And if the exams are normal for the first few years, then the monitoring frequency can be extended to 2 to 3 years, as long as other risk factors are under control. However, patients with proliferative retinopathy, they may need to be examined more frequently as determined by their ophthalmologist. You may be asked about retinal photos and artificial intelligence used to pick up on retinal disease. While there is evidence that retinal photos can increase efficiency and can increase the access to diabetic retinopathy screening, they are not a substitute for a complete dilated comprehensive eye exam and could be used only to supplement a complete exam. So there are two main ways we deal with retinopathy. The first way is to optimize risk factors. And the second way is to offer eye-specific interventions. So in order to optimize risk factors, we have to work on, number one, the diabetes, number two, the blood pressure, and number three, uh, consider offering lipid-lowering medications such as phenofibrate. So, starting with the diabetes control, as we have discussed in prior episodes, intensive diabetes control with the goal of achieving near-normal glycemia has been shown in large prospective randomized trials to prevent or delay the onset and progression of diabetic retinopathy, reduce the need for future ocular surgical procedures, and potentially also improve patient-reported visual function. Keep in mind that a 1% A1C reduction can slow down or reduce the incidence of diabetic retinopathy by somewhere between 20 and 35%. Also note that a sudden quick improvement in glucose can cause temporary worsening of the retinopathy, although the optimal rate of A1C improvement is not really clear in those with very uncontrolled diabetes. A meta-analysis of data from cardiovascular studies did not show an association between GLP receptor agonists 
and retinopathy per se, except through the indirect association between retinopathy and the average A1C reduction speed at three months and at one year. Now, we're going to aim for a lower A1C, but as you are aware, an A1C reduction below a certain threshold has been associated with increased cardiovascular mortality, specifically because of the increased incidence in hypoglycemia. So if you are going to use such a strategy, you have to weigh the benefits and risks, and, and you would have to select your patients very carefully. In terms of blood pressure, keeping the blood pressure below 130 over 80 has been shown to delay the progression of diabetic retinopathy, but a more aggressive approach, like controlling the blood pressure below 120 over 80, has not been shown to offer further benefit. And um, another risk factor you can control is the cholesterol. So specifically, in the ACCORD study, like we have discussed earlier, phenofibrate or fibrates in general... um, used in early non-proliferative retinopathy seemed to delay progression by 40% over a four-year uh, treatment period. Okay, so once you've controlled the risk factors, and if there is signs of progression into proliferative diabetic retinopathy or perhaps severe non-proliferative retinopathy, then you may want to consider eye-specific interventions, which are going to be offered by the ophthalmologist. So when we're talking about proliferative retinopathy, we have three main interventions. The first one is the pan-retinal laser photocoagulation, so laser photocoagulation of the entire retina. The second would be a more focused uh, form of photocoagulation called focal photocoagulation of the macula, And the third intervention is intravitreous injections with endothelial growth factor inhibitors. So the choice of therapy, which one of these three to use, primarily depends on whether the patient has comorbid macular edema. In those with macular edema causing visual impairment, intravitreous injections are the first line, while focal coagulation of the macula is second line. Now, in those without macular edema, panretinal laser photocoagulation is the primary treatment choice. In those with severe non-proliferative retinopathy, also the actual only option is panretinal photocoagulation because the injections were shown to only be beneficial for those with proliferative retinopathy. Also note that for some patients, a combination of both the injections and the panretinal laser photocoagulation can be offered. The purpose of these treatments is to either burn off the blood vessels that are causing the visual impairment or to end the stimulation for the development of further blood vessels. So again, to summarize, if we have a patient with proliferative retinopathy, let's say the patient does not have macular edema, then we have to control the uh, blood sugars, the blood pressure, we can consider the use of fibrates, and then most likely they can be offered panretinal laser photocoagulation, 
while if they did have macular edema with visual impairment, then we can most likely offer them intravitreal injections with growth factor inhibitors. And this concludes our episode on diabetic retinopathy. In the next episode, we will be discussing diabetic neuropathy. Thank you for listening.